Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies, I've got James Inman on the show today. James was featured in the cult classic, The Unbookables, which was brought to us by Doug Stanhope. James is an interesting fella and definitely quite a bit different from what you see on The Unbookables. On The Unbookables, he looked a little out of control. The guy I talked to seemed a little bit more at peace, and and, and years have gone by, so people grow. But uh, he seems a little bit more at peace and uh, definitely has a different perspective on comedy. I think this one was real interesting, and I got a lot out of it. I listened back to it, and I really think this is a good one. Now, I recorded this a while back, and the file was corrupted. I was able to get the file fixed, but it doesn't sound the best. I've done everything I can to make it sound as good as I can. And let me tell you, what you're hearing today is a lot better than what I had to work with before. So if there's some snaps and crackles and pops and it's a little bit crunchy, that's because the file was corrupted and I wasn't able to fix it as well as I want to. If you're able to get around that, though, it's a good one. It's James Inman. Let's do it. James <laughs> Inman, how how you doing, James? Fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> some comedians get a little bit weirded out of, uh, with me not wanting to talk to them a whole lot before the interview, but I like to get to know you while we're while we're uh, uh, recording to have a good time. So I'm I'm glad okay. you're. Uh, I'm I'm glad you're here. This is going to be a lot of fun. So, um, like I told you before we started, I I listened to your uh, to your uh, comedy stuff, your comedy albums you got out there. The, uh, um, um, and then I list I watched the unbookables, and the first thing uh-huh. I gotta I gotta uh, try to track down is uh, how did you and Stanhope get hooked up? Uh, well, uh, we I. I met him um, at the uh, Vail Comedy Invitational. It was a uh, comedy festival that they were trying to um, create another one after just for last. Like just for last, some uh, you know some people had complaints about just for last, and uh, so Judy Brown and uh, Bud Friedman tried to start their own comedy festival in Vail, Colorado. And uh, Judy Brown went all over the country and had these little contests. Mm -hmm. Like she had one in Boston, one in Las Vegas, uh, one in in Seattle. And so I had to go up against all the comics in Seattle, all the good comics, you know, the headliners and stuff. 
and I won that contest. And Doug won, I think, in Las Vegas. Uh, Jim Norton, uh, he won like out in the East Coast in Boston or something. Uh-huh. And so that's that's when I first met Jim Norton and Doug Stanhope at that festival. Okay. And how long had you been doing comedy before you did the festival? Oh, probably about 15 years. Okay. 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, in watching the documentary, I've never seen a documentary that is as real as the documentary the unbookables because i mean i i guess i know when somebody's fucked up because i've been fucked up plenty times myself uh and it's not something you can you can accurately fake and uh during the first part of that you guys were all uh pretty much uh uh fucked up and uh yeah and uh and so it's called it's called doug stanhope stan bookables so he he knows all you guys, you and Andy, yeah. uh, Andy mm-hmm. and Sean, and all the all the guys and Bill and all the all these people. So he knows you from different ways. So was it was it his idea to just um, do this uh, this documentary following you guys around, or was that your idea, or whose idea was it to put that together? Well, um, what happened was um, I got punched on stage. Uh-huh. Uh, like in 2009 and it became a viral video and um doug called me up and he goes hey i saw you got punched on stage i saw that video uh-huh. and he goes i um i created a page on my website called the unbookables and he had all of his friends up there that the guys that do edgy comedy yeah and uh so i i was doing you know because my my hero was bill hicks you know uh-huh. and i've always done edgy comedy i get punched on stage Doug puts my video up there along with Sean Rouse, Braden Walsh, um, Travis Lipsky, Fred Erickson. And so that was that was a page that he got for a while. And he named it The Unbookables. Uh-huh. And uh and so he calls me up uh, and he goes, uh, I I want to do something with the unbookables. What do you think we should do? And I told him, I I remember saying this on the phone. I mean Doug is like, he'll deny this because he's drunk half the time. He doesn't remember, but I remember this. <laughs> I go, well, I go, uh, we should just uh, rent a van or a, a bus. And I know a, uh, a documentary filmmaker in Seattle. I just have him, have him um, you know, uh, film everything and, uh, and make a documentary. And Doug goes, no, that's a dumb idea. And so I'm like, all right, whatever. And so um, this documentary filmmaker guy keeps calling me and he's like, I, I, I need a new project, you know, because he was he just finished finished the film and uh, he's looking for another project. And I said to him, I go, well, you know, I just talked to Doug, you know, and um, he's wanting to do something with the unbookables. And um, and he's like, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. And so what I did was I I mailed Doug and Brian Hennigan a copy of this guy's first documentary is called Pirate Radio USA. And it was all about, uh, you know, underground radio. Yeah. And it was really a good documentary, grungy. This guy's from Seattle and it's real political, you know, and um, he's kind of an uh, unbookable director. Uh And so uh, 
uh, I called Doug up about like a week later. I go, did you watch the documentary? It's like, yeah. So I was like, do you think we should, we should have this guy do this? You know, he wants to do it. And, and Doug's the type of guy like, Doug, he says any, anything you ask Doug, it doesn't matter what you ask him. Like, Doug, can I use the bathroom? No. <laughs> I mean, that's his first, his first response to any fucking question. Doug, can I drink a beer? No. Um, this time when I asked him, he didn't say anything, you know? So I call up uh, Brett Erickson and Norm Wilkerson. I'm like, he didn't say no. So he must, he must want us to do this, you know? Uh-huh. And so, uh, and we were really getting much word from Doug or anything. I'm like, let's just do it. Fuck Doug, you know? He's not going to help us. We're going to have to do this ourselves, you know? So sure enough, we all, you know, Norm Wilkerson booked some rooms down in Texas. Brett Erickson booked some stuff out in Indianapolis or Indiana uh-huh. or no, uh, Illinois. Okay. And uh, I, I booked some stuff in Kansas City. And uh, we just filmed it, you know. Uh-huh. And then, but it, uh, after they filmed it, it took like, uh, you know, it took years to edit it and yeah. get it ready because there's all this political bullshit going on in the background. We had lawyers arguing and shit, you know, and it was crazy. Was it about what you said or was it about people that were shown in the documentary or why, why were lawyers getting pissed off? Well, uh, I never, I never heard the whole story behind that, but it was Doug's lawyers and Jeff, the director's lawyers. And oh, they're arguing right, over, they're arguing over the name for Doug didn't want to call it. The thing of it is, when I first talked to Doug, I, I, you know, we were talking on the phone and I go, Jeff wants uh, creative control. You know, he wants full creative control. And I said, I think we should give it to him because uh, these movies that are made in Hollywood, they got like 10 directors and Mm -hmm. 10 different writers. And, and, and it usually sucks because, you know, uh, you know, they want to, they want to rewrite the ending and everything. And I go, the best movies are when they're made by, you know, Quentin Tarantino, you know, or, or David Lynch oh. or, uh, or Martin Scorsese, you know, they, they, uh, have full creative control and there's nobody coming in to rewrite the ending or anything like that. Right. And so Doug agreed with me and, uh, so we, we, it was a verbal agreement, you know, I mean, but Doug also signed a contract too. You know, Jeff gave him a contract and said, you know, I get full creative control and, um, they did it that legally, but then years later, you know, Doug wanted to come in and make some changes and Jeff said, no, you gave me creative control. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what they were arguing about. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I guess what, so what year was it actually recorded? It came out in 17, right? Yeah. Well, it actually, <laughs> technically it came out in December 7th. 2017 but really it was effectively 2018 by the time it yeah. got on amazon prime uh-huh. I mean, we, we signed the contract december 2017 but by, by the time it got on amazon prime google play youtube um you know the dvd came out everywhere uh-huh. uh it was 2018 uh but we we taped it in 2009 oh so, okay um but the director, he 
he purposely you know, chose all the jumps and stuff to be kind of like timeless. So they weren't right. on anything topical. Right. So, um, so he knew that, you know, it, it would be good 25 years down the road because we're all talking about, you know, Lipsky stop talking about cops. I uh -huh. mean, we're always going to have cops. You know, I'm talking about relationships or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so he, he, uh, made it kind of timeless, uh -huh. you know, now you look better now than you did in the documentary. Are are you are you living any cleaner now, or um, is it just is yeah, it just you got a good you know, camera? Yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't really drink um, as much as I used to. You know, uh -huh. I, I uh, you know because I'm almost sixty, but um, but you know I kind of separate my 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 comedy character from my real life character. You know, yeah. like. In real life, I'm I'm not like that. Yeah. Did you did you feel like when you were with those guys that you needed to push it a little bit to um, make the documentary more gritty or anything? Because I mean, you guys you guys um, were pushing it. Well, I mean, I personally I didn't. I was just being myself, mm -hmm. and after the first day, I completely forgot that those um, those uh, cameras are even there. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, but I think some of the other comics were were trying to push it, like during the the Kansas City scene. They're all like, you know, they're they're trying to do edgy jokes on stage yeah. to piss off the owner. The owner ends ends up firing everybody yeah. except me. Yeah, you know. Um, but I was just like, just be yourself. You don't have to make yourself any more edgier than you already are. You yeah. know, right? I was I I didn't think any of that was going to make it into the film actually i thought jeff was gonna cut that out uh -huh. but um but yeah when we got i i didn't want to i didn't want us to get fired because that would kind of take um, a whole day or two days off off of uh, actual right stuff right use you know uh but it ended up being you know like the phone call and everything yeah. you know it ended up being like the funniest part in the movie, really. That um, that was really the most compelling part of the movie is is how you guys interacted after that, uh, and yeah. during. Yeah, I mean, they that was uh, the director Jeff Piercing. Uh, he he made that like the conflict in the movie. You know, should you uh, stick to your guns and stick to your creative pr principles, or should you? Uh, compromise just so you can, you know, work and uh -huh. make money. Uh -huh. Now, I haven't seen I haven't seen comedy like what you guys do or did. E even Norton doesn't cross the line as much as you guys did in the particular sets that you guys were doing. Yeah. How do do you think that that type of comedy is? Do you think you can still do it? Oh yeah, I, I still do that kind of comedy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I taught myself improv like years ago, mm -hmm. and so uh, there there are jokes that I do that are bits, you know, and then there's parts of my act that I just talk off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. And in doing that type of comedy, I, I mean, really, it's in your face. It's 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 geared to get a response and have some shock value to it in, in doing that. So what I've heard from a lot of comedians that tour is 
when you're in the club, it doesn't really matter. It's that one person in the club that gets offended and they just go nuts on it and then create this big <laughs> wave of, of shit that, that hits you afterwards. Is, yeah. is that still happening? Or when, when people come to the club now, do they pretty much know what they're going to get with you? Um, with me or just with any well, a anybody that does more edgy type of humor. Well, um, the way I do it, I, I do it a little bit differently than, um, than what most comics do. Like, um, the end product, you know, the, the end product, what I do on stage ends up being edgy, mm -hmm. but I try to, uh, I try to kill it to where they don't even notice or they wouldn't even complain or they're laughing so hard that they wouldn't think to complain. You know, mm -hmm. there, there, there was a time in my career where I would slip those jokes in, you know, trying to offend the audience. And I could tell like half of them would be offended and, and the other half, you know, were laughing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that kind of, you get a, you get a little bit of rise off of that, but it's not real comedy it's not real edgy comedy edgy to me edgy comedy is when you do a great joke everybody laughs and they cannot deny that it was over the top yeah. because i mean they'll they'll realize later that it was over the top mm -hmm. they'll say oh i can't believe i laughed at that yeah but they won't <laughs> they won't get offended they won't walk i see i i rarely have walkouts uh -huh. you know i um it usually people like me on stage, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so when I do the jokes that are, that are edgy, you know, it's, it's, um, it's more of a, it's in the improv, uh, kind of talk it off the top of your head and they, they, they get it. You yeah. Know? And you're not, you're not a, um, mean spirited type of guy. I mean, I can just see that from watching everything you do. A lot of it is, it's just what's going on in your own head as far as far as I can tell. And it's not, you're, you're not lashing out at people. You are just saying what comes up in that weird head of yours. Yeah. Um, there's a reason why I kind of changed my whole creative process. Like I got invited to the, um, Montreal just for last festival. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was in 1997 and, uh, Bill Hicks had just passed away. Well, I mean, he passed away in, in 1992 or, um, but, but they had a, um, they had a Bill Hicks memorial and they had this big room. All the comics showed up and they, they showed clips of Bill Hicks and they had a, a question and answer period afterwards. And there was a, there was a guy there that wrote for the Atlantic and he, he's the guy that wrote that story about Bill Hicks in the Atlantic that got, you know, kind of made Bill hit some, um, you know, like a Liddy Bruce for America. Mm -hmm. And he was at that, um, he was at that festival and I, I had a chance to talk to him. And so I, I was like, I, I want to ask him a question, but I, you know, I don't want to, you know, take up all of his time or anything. So I got up this really good question. I, I was like, uh, what was Bill Hicks's, uh, what was his uh, creative process? Like, how, how did he write jokes? And the guy looks at me, he goes, uh, Bill Hicks wrote on stage. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, he didn't have a notebook. 
He said, if it was funny, you'd remember it. And I was like, oh my God. And then it kind of makes sense because, you know, listening to um, uh, Richard Pryor albums, you could kind of tell Richard Pryor is like talking off the top of his head. Yeah. And I remember reading uh, Lenny Bruce's uh, biography, that Albert Goldman biography, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. He, that's how he wrote. He wrote on stage, mm -hmm. you know, he'd talk off the top of his head. And then, uh, you know, if it was funny, he'd, he'd turn it into a bit. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. I went back to Seattle. I'd never done this before, by the way. I always wrote my jokes in a notebook, memorized them, and then told them on stage. Mm -hmm. So I go back to Seattle and I'm like, okay, I can't get fired at open mic night. <laughs> so I would go to open mic night and they'd give me like five minutes. And I just go on stage. I just say whatever was on top of my head. You know, some nights it would kill. Some nights it would just like totally eat it. Uh -huh. And I did this for a while. Like I did this for months until I could kind of, I, and I started putting it in my act, you know, and eventually five minutes became 10 minutes, 10 minutes became 20 minutes. And uh, eventually that's how I, I wrote, I wrote jokes, you know, and um, uh, because it, it sounds more natural. It, 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 you don't sound like you're telling a joke, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and so now, like when I look back, both of my CDs, like all the jokes on both of my CDs, I wrote all of those jokes on stage. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, like the first 10 years of my, uh, my career, I would, I would write them down in a notebook, but then after I started changing the way I write, you know, I started, I started writing like Bill Hicks. And the funny thing is, you know, I didn't become, I became more myself when I did that. I, yeah. I you know, I, I was less like Bill Hicks and more like myself because I was just being myself. Mm -hmm. So when you go on stage with, say, say you do an open mic with, and you got five minutes, do you go up there with like three or four ideas that you want to work out? Or do you just go up there and look at the audience and say, okay, this came to my mind? Uh, usually it's like, It'll be something that, uh, like, on the way to the club, uh -huh. um, there'll be something that's pissing me off or or um, or something I remember from during that week, you know, like, say, an argument I got in with my girlfriend or, mm. or something. And, uh, you know, it's it's generally something that happened that day, yeah. you know, just whatever I can think of. You yeah. Know? So what were your teenage years like? We're about the same age, and I I, I want to compare notes on that. What what were you like as a teenager? Oh, just, you know, um, I was never the class clown. I was more like, I was the guy that was friends with the class clown. Uh -huh. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I always made friends with um, people that made me laugh. Like, I, uh -huh. when I think about all my all my buddies um in uh in grade school and in high school it was always these guys that made me laugh so hard i'd pee my pants you know uh -huh. that, that was something else that um that would happen in grade school is i i would laugh so hard i i pee my pants yeah <laughs> well at least you're pretty good to hear too. me <laughs> So were you were you like a, a major uh, party animal as a teenager, or did that come uh, later? Not at all. I mean, I, 
I, I really, I, I never even, I, like, I never liked marijuana, like in high school, like I smoked it and it always made me paranoid. Uh. Um, I didn't really, um, I didn't even really see any cocaine until like five years into my career. I okay. was probably 25 years old. Um, I didn't really start getting interested in drugs until like, I, since I was a comedian and that was my job, I had all day, you know, during the day to read. And so yeah. that's what I did, you know, before the internet came out, I, I would just hang out at bookstores and read books. And so I get, I get stuck on a subject and I, I just read everything I get on, uh, on the history of uh, the sixties and LSD and drugs. So I kind of got interested in, in drugs later by reading books like um, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by, you know, Tom Wall, um, you know, history of hallucinogenic mushrooms and, and all that sort of stuff. Terrence McKenna. Mm. So uh, it's, it was never, it's kind of more of a experimental thing with me than it is like party animal. You uh-huh. Know? That's that's funny because I was kind of the same, but it was when I was a teenager and I got it all out of my system by the time I was pr- pretty much 20. Yeah, I, I kind of, I led a real uh, mundane, uh, you know, childhood. Uh-huh. It was pretty boring. So how does your... I think I was in a band, you know, uh-huh. I, I played guitar, but, yeah, you know, what, I didn't really do drugs. What kind of music did you play? Oh, I was, I played Rush, Led Zeppelin, you know, oh, cool. um, Le, Eddie Van Halen and stuff like that. Yeah. But by the time, you know, New Wave and Punk came out, I, I'd already sold my guitar and had been uh, doing stand-up. So you, you still like music, I can tell, because I see those speakers set yeah, up. I'm and... a big uh, Elvis Costello fan. Yeah, yeah. I got to see him, my wife and I got to see him, I think, was it four years ago in Grand Rapids, Michigan? And it was it was really a funny concert because you could tell that he didn't want to be there during the first part. I mean, you could just tell. It, it was yeah, just like, because uh-huh. I saw Deep Purple years ago and they were just like phoning it in. It was just like, okay, space trucking, da, 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 and yeah. okay, smoke on the water. Da, da. It was just, it was just ridiculous and he was starting to do that and then finally i don't know what clicked he finally started getting into it about a third of the way through and then the rest of it was fantastic uh-huh. yeah it it's it's funny to be able to notice that um i i saw um nate bargetsy um in indianapolis with my wife and I liked it so much. I saw him on the same tour in South Bend because we still lived up that way. And it, the difference between the two shows was just night and day. The Indianapolis show was fantastic. The South Bend show was for everybody else. It was great, but I knew how good he was last time. And it wasn't, it wasn't the same thing. It, yeah. You could just tell he just wasn't on the same page as he was in Indy. Uh, yeah. That's, and that's the way it is with comedy. Sometimes when you go up there, you don't want to be up there. Yeah. I mean, there was a time in my career where um, I'd always drink before I went on stage. Cause I think I had, uh, I had um, stage fright. You know? Yeah. But uh, after I taught myself improv, I, I started getting so good at it that, um, that I, I, I could just do it, you know, in my sleep, you yeah. know? So I started doing sober comedy 
And I noticed that um, when I when I had two or three drinks, I would talk slower, mm-hmm. and I did I didn't really like that. So then I started I started you know doing more sober shows, and then I would drink after the show. You know, uh-huh. so, yeah, uh, just because it's you know you want to pronounce all your words clearly when you're up there, so everybody can understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned teaching yourself improv. Take me through that. What's that like to teach yourself improv? Um, well, uh, you, you know, we all do it. Like, uh, we all know how to do it. We just don't know that we know mm. because like right now we're just doing improv or I mean, yeah. we're talking off the top of our head. Every time you have a conversation, you know, with your parents or, or your family or your friend, you know, you're, you're just talking off the top of your head. And, um, one thing, one thing you notice is uh, when you're just talking, you know, you, you might mention, you might accidentally mention something that goes too far and, and you can tell they, they're not going to laugh. They don't mm-hmm. laugh. Like you're, you're, you're talking about something funny and then you happen to mention 9-11 or you happen to mention cancer or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you kind of, you, you realize how to stay away from those topics, but still make it funny, you know, and, and it, it comes through eventually, you know, some will come up mm-hmm. and, and you go, Oh, that's a good cancer joke. I'm going to keep that in because you know, it works, mm-hmm. but you can't, when you're, when you're just writing jokes and, and you, you try them over and over again and they won't work. It's like, you're forcing it. Mm-hmm. But when you do it, uh, just talking up top of your head, you're not really forcing anything. You're just, uh, it happens more naturally. And the, the other weird thing is um, around that time when I started doing improv is when I was, I was studying the book, The Tao Te Ching. And um, that's, uh, it's a Chinese religion philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it's all about natural and naturalness and, and uh, water and, yin yang and everything and so i I was doing a lot of meditation at the time and uh, it just seemed like the obvious choice Mm -hmm. so in thinking about improving and working with audiences that way where you, you get to travel the country so what what areas of the country do you think your best audiences lie and what part of the country are your worst audiences um well okay so i started comedy in the city and i was never i mean i'd get last but um when i moved to uh seattle i noticed that like, almost all my jokes worked mm-hmm. and um there was something a comic told me once um like in rules of comedy uh you know he said um you got to have an identifiable character. Um, and one of the rules was uh, the audience has to feel superior to you. And um, that makes sense because the fool or the jester, the clown, I mean, that's what we do. We're comedians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're like the lowly character that's uh, either that's irrational um, or crazy or, you know, if we say something clever, it just, it happens. Um, uh, naturally, you know, because we're just like idiots of odds. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so for some reason, like when I do comedy in Kansas City, like people, you know, they're not that smart here in Kansas. Okay, so 
use a big word. And they're like, oh, there you go. You're Mr. Know-it-all. You know, you think you know everything. But in Seattle, like everyone in the audience is smarter than me because it's just like the smarter people in Seattle, right? And so I was able to play the dumb guy easier in Seattle. Here in Kansas City, you got to like (laughs) rub shit all over your body and fucking wear clown shoes. And they're like, oh, that's the guy that's dumb. Yeah. You know, so uh, it's easier to be dumb in Seattle. And so all my jokes work. also, another thing they liked in the West Coast, uh, it seemed like they could understand character comedy better. Like, oh, this is a character. Mm-hmm. He's talking off the top of the head. I, when I, I lived in New York for like three years. They didn't get me at all in New York. Oh, really? You know, because they're like, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. They, were, they were like, um, uh, they didn't want to hear politics mm-hmm. in, in New York. They just... They just wanted to hear the jokes. Uh-huh. I mean, if you listen to somebody like um, David Tell, you listen to his act, it's just joke, 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 you know? Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, somebody like me, uh, they, they didn't get. But, I mean, I did really well in, like, San Francisco. I always did good in L.A., uh, but I, I never wanted to move to L.A. I mean, uh-huh. that was my big that's probably why I never really became famous because I hated LA. I never wanted to move there, but my jokes always work better in Seattle. Uh-huh. That's, that, that's interesting. How about Midwest? I mean, Kansas City's kind of Midwest, but did you ever do uh, Indiana or, and I know you did Illinois. Yeah. So what, what do those audiences do? The Bible belt folks? Well, I mean, it's like uh, Indiana, Illinois. It's kind of like Kansas, you know, it's, yeah. it's the Midwest. And, um, the sex jokes always work, you know. Um, I, I do, I, you know, my act pretty much, um, it was, it was weird because sometimes, I mean, I played every state in the country almost except for like some of the, I never played Maine, mm-hmm. you know, I never played Hawaii, but I, you know, I played almost all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was weird. There is a big cultural shift when you go from, like, I had to do a week in Atlanta, Georgia. And the very next week I was in uh, New Jersey. And so it's like, you know, um, it's, it's a, just an attitude change. Yeah. Like you, you say the jokes differently, a little more sarcastic in, mm-hmm. uh, in New Jersey. And they'll, they'll still laugh. Yeah. You know, there's, there's certain things that unite us all, you know, like um, old people and young people, city versus uh, country. Mm-hmm male versus female you know there's and everyone knows what it's like to be high and drunk mm-hmm. yep. so there's there's certain subjects that just make any audience laugh yeah do you know what you're gonna do you have an idea i should say of what you're gonna do when you get on stage based on where you're at and what you want to say um well i i don't really i mean yeah i do i mean because um from all the improv, I already have these set bits that I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone, if, if I get paid, I'm doing all my best bits. Mm-hmm. And I'm also going to do a little improv. But um, if there's a kind of a non-logical um, thing where you, you look at the audience and you can tell, but, oh, look at the clothes they wear. Look at the, there's some people with blue hair, yellow hair, whatever. Um you get a sense 
an intuitive sense about the audience. It's it's really it's a it's a lot different thing from somebody that's famous, like somebody like Doug Stanhope, because everyone's there to see Doug Stanhope mm-hmm. and they know who he is. But guys like me, you know, they don't know who I am. They're just showing up comedy clubs, so you got to deal with what you got. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I've I've noticed that uh, we've got a comedy club here in Huntsville, and I've noticed that. Uh, the audience is super mixed because you know you got you got down home Huntsville people, and then you've got all the people that relocated, and it's uh it's definitely uh, a mixed vibe. And and anybody that can uh, kill it at the local club here is definitely in tune with who they're talking to, which is really a room full of very different people. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, well, that's why. Uh, you know, uh, in music, you know, if you want to be a great guitar player, you got to learn everything. You got to learn all the scale. You got to mm. learn all the chords. You learn classical. You learn blues. You you know, uh, and so you become a well-rounded musician, and um, and then you you're well. I mean, you're a professional. You know how yeah. to, you know how to make just about any audience laugh. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's uh, so true. Now. One of the biggest debates I see all over the place is cancel culture. Is it a thing? Is it not a thing? Is it ruining comedy? Uh, what's your take on people being canceled and and all that kind of stuff? Um, well, I mean, I just, uh, I, uh, you know, on Twitter, a weird thing happened to me once. I, I, I used to follow um, on Twitter uh, this girl. Um, God, what was her name? Uh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, um, uh, she would, um, the stuff that she would tweet, you know, was all politically correct. And and uh, it was comedy that worked for uh, Twitter, right? right? Anyway, she came to town and I watched her set. Same girl, completely different things that she would say on stage that she would never say on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So this whole cancel culture thing is just something for social media. I mean, that's why um, Dave Chappelle says, you know, Twitter's not a real place. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it isn't. Because, I mean, it's a, um, when you're doing Twitter jokes, I mean, they, they only work for Twitter. I mean, sometimes they'll cross over and they'll work at a live comedy club, but cancel culture isn't, has no effect in the live comedy club because the joke either works or it doesn't. Right. Right. It's, it's either funny or it isn't. Yeah. The people that complain about it are the ones that are, are thinking too much. They're, they, they're overthinking the art form itself. They're mm-hmm. like, why can't I talk about the Holocaust? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, those jokes had never worked. I yeah. mean, even when I first started comedy before Twitter, before cancel culture, there was very few comics that had a Holocaust joke. It's not easy to write a joke about the Holocaust to make people laugh. I right. mean, it could be done, but you're going to be up there like Bill Hick, you know, I mean, he he was able to to take these subjects like the Gulf War, the war, uh, you know. Hey, what's T thirteen do? Oh, it uh, t- destroys everything but the fillings in their teeth. <laughs> you know, pull up G thirteen. Yeah. You know, and so 
you know, he's talking about war, but obviously it's working. Right. You know, right. so to me, the comments that complain about cancel culture are just, they're, they're not good enough. You know, they'll, they'll do a joke that they think is that gene. It doesn't get any laughs. There could be a, you know, a hundred different reasons why that joke didn't get a laugh, dude. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Now there are, um, seems like there's a comedy community in every town now. It seems like everybody, uh-huh. uh, they're they're doing open mics and they call themselves a comedian because they do open mics here and there and stuff like that. You know, I'm I'm a self-proclaimed hobbyist at at being a comedian because I'm too old to um start that shit over or or start that shit because I didn't start until I was 52. But um with all with with this influx of so many people saying that they're a comedian, how do you know which ones are the real ones and which ones aren't, um, you know, cause anybody, anybody can get like string together, like two or three decent bits and have a good three minutes. You know what I mean? How, how do you, yeah. how, how, how yeah, do you, I, it was always the way it was when I started was, you know, quit your day job and you're, you're, you're traveling to different cities, mm-hmm. making money by telling jokes you go from, you know, just doing it around your own city to actually traveling to different cities. And that's where you find out different cities have different things that make them laugh. Mm. You know, um, your joke about mass transit doesn't work in this city, you know, and jokes about cars work in that city. So, yeah, I would call I would call somebody a real comedian, you know, once they start traveling from city to city. Mm-hmm. But there are there are a lot of comics. They'll they'll stay in that one town. All their jokes always work there, you know, and and uh, you know, like say a place like Austin or Denver, you know, I, I remember getting off stage once uh at an open mic night, you know, I was just in town, I was in Denver and um uh it was open mic, I'd go on stage, I'd kill, you know. And I get off stage and the MC, you know, you could tell like she didn't like my act for some reason. And she's like, oh, a road comic. I'm like, yeah, mm. like, you know, <laughs> so you can you can spend a lot of time trying to be clever. But um, usually those people, they're not funny to begin with. I mean, they're 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 thinking in, they're, they're thinking in terms of of how how to make themselves laugh mm-hmm. as opposed to how, how do you make the audience laugh? You know, I, I kind of, I balance it between myself, you know, what I, what I think is funny and the audience. Mm-hmm. Like if it's something that only makes the audience laugh and I don't like the joke, I'm not going to do it anyway. Yeah. You know, it's got to be something that I think is funny and the audience thinks funny. And so there's more of a connection there. As opposed to somebody on stage just trying to be clever. Oh, I read this. I wrote this brilliant thing, and you guys are supposed to like it. And if you don't like it, you're stupid. Yeah. You know. And those those type of comics generally, they're jealous of the ones that can really do it. You know, yeah. they really have a a connection to the audience. And you know, I, I'm I I want to make sure they remember who I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is there like a a palatable feeling 
when you do connect because I know that there I've been I've done it plenty of times where I didn't connect and I've done it times where I do connect and you can almost feel it it's almost like you're going from second gear in the third or something like that you know it's almost can you feel that when you're up there well I mean it's kind of like that you know uh in meditation uh you know there's you sit down and you're saying to yourself, I'm meditating, I'm meditating. But there's a moment where you, you start meditating so much that you kind of forget yourself and you forget the room is even there. Mm-hmm. And you're just, you and the room are part of the same thing. And so when you're really killing on stage, you know, it's, it's, you, you kind of forget yourself. You're, you forget that you're, you're the one telling that joke. Uh, the really brilliant jokes. I mean, I don't feel like I wrote the joke. I feel like it just kind of, it was something that flowed through me. It was something that I came up accidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not really, I'm, re- we're all, you know, once I really connect with the audience, we're all kind of laughing at the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they, they, you know, they get that. They, cause nobody, nobody likes an egotistical, asshole on stage that i wrote this joke now i'm going to say it. you know nobody yes. like fuck you you uh-huh. know right now you probably get at least a couple people that watch the unbookables at every show right lately more like uh, uh jeff um pearson um you know he passed away about yeah. a year and a half ago yeah um but he told me, you know, uh, that it's it's going to be different than like a TV sitcom because, you know, if a comedian's in a sitcom, you know, he's instantly famous. Uh-huh. But something like a documentary or a movie, you know, the fame kind of, you know, it, it grows slowly, but it, it gets just keeps growing and growing. Yeah. You know, and so I, I have noticed that, you know, when it first came out, of course, you know, I was walking around like a rock star, uh-huh. but nobody really knew. Just. Just yesterday, I went to a comic show. All the comics freaked out when I showed up, and they all wanted to take their pictures with me. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh my god, I I gotta get out more, you know. But um, <laughs> but uh, like lately, you know, I I've been doing this a lot longer than Doug, you know. So my yeah. career is kind of on its, you know, the down slope, you know. Um, and I haven't been getting out doing comedy that much. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm, I never became famous like Doug, you know, he's doing it all the time. Um, uh, but like I said, you know, I'm not, it's not that I'm tired of it. It's just that, uh, you know, that movie, I, I don't know how to market it or I don't know what to do, you know, because it, it did kind of hurt my um, reputation a little bit you know like there's a lot of clubs that can't work because i was in that movie yeah i was gonna uh, ask there's the, other clubs that you know they want me yeah that's that, that's really why i asked that question because it seems like somebody who watched the movie is expecting something different from you than you might bring up well i mean i still do like i said i still do improv and stuff you know and um uh, I, you know, I, I can still pull it off. Uh, it's, uh, it, I, to tell you the God does truth. I was working on that movie for so long now. It's just like, I, I, I have an, a net, another stage in my career. I, I don't really know what to do now because I want to do something different, but, uh-huh. but I'm, I'm proud of that movie, but, um, it's kind of hard to, 
uh, like if I don't live in LA, I don't really know what to do. Uh-huh. You know, I, I live in Kansas City now, and you know, it's uh, <laughs> the whole thing was a, just a weird, a weird journey. Yeah, let's, let's say that. But I mean, I'm proud of it because um, I lucked out uh, meeting Jeff. And he, we were both in the same kind of music. Like we were both into punk rock. And mm-hmm. so when I when I watch this movie now, it just kind of reminds me of like a uh, a comics version of punk rock. Yeah, yeah. You know? I got that. Compare, yeah. Like if you look at what the Sex Pistols and the Clash did, you know they bands like Journey and Pink Floyd and and uh, they were playing these huge stadiums. You know, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, they would play these tiny little bars and they're like, fuck Journey. You know, this is the Clash. You know, we're going to we're gonna DIY, do it yourself. We may not be good at these instruments, but we're just going to pick up these instruments and play. And uh, so it's funny because some of those unbookables, like they didn't even know what punk rock was. I mean, like <laughs> Travis Lipsky, I was trying to tell him about the Clash. He didn't even know who the clutch was. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, he doesn't know, like, because I had Doug's, some of Doug's bands are not all that smart. I remember the one guy, I asked him what he thought of the movie. He goes, I didn't, I didn't like it. I'm like, why did you like it? He's like, well, you're, you're playing all these tiny little rooms. I'm like, yeah, that's why it's funny. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not like anything you'd see on Comedy Central. Like, you turn on Comedy Central. Every one of those comics are playing in this big, nice looking room. And the comics got really nice clothes on. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're just now uh, filming some of these specials in little rooms, you know? Yeah. And you can tell, like, I, I've seen people rip off the unbookables. I mean, it's, it's funny. Yeah, I can, I, I can definitely see that because, I mean, it really, as, as somebody who, kind of understands comedy and knows what it's like to be on the road. I can see that that movie just being a point in time for people. It's just like, Oh, Oh yeah, I did that. You know, I, you know, it, it, I had nights like that. I got fired. You know, I, I, I was, I was too drunk uh-huh. to be on stage, you know, that, that, that type of thing. And it's, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's real. So, so and, and that, that's what I really liked about it was the fact that it was, you know, it, it just felt like what real traveling comedy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I was really proud of it. Um, Jeff, I was, I was friends with Jeff for, for years, you know, and, I had no idea that he'd work so hard on that film. You know, it, uh, it was really a labor of love for him. And he was proud of it too, you know. Mm-hmm. Has he had anything come out since? No, I mean, he, after, um, after the movie came out, um, he was thinking about um, uh, redoing his, he used to have a show called Deep Face the Nation that was on, um, he had the number one uh public access show that that was another reason why he was such a good guy because he'd been around cameras and and studios and editing for years you know mm. for i mean back in the 90s he had the number one public access show in seattle and he used to get written up in the local paper all the time because it was a really brilliant political show uh-huh. um but uh you know but but then he got into making 
film and he, he made uh, Pirate Radio USA and he made uh, The Unbookables and um, and then he got cancer and he died. <laughs> oh. Yeah. But I mean, I love, uh, he was a fun guy. He, I think he had a degree in debate or something, but mm. he, um, he, uh, he's really brilliant, uh, with politics. We get on the phone, we talk for hours about politics and making each other laugh. That's great. And the, what I really liked about the movie was the fact that he really, was a fly in the wall. He did not insert himself into any of it at all. And I thought that was mm -hmm. really cool because some yeah. documentarians, you know, they accidentally step in the frame or uh, do something yeah. stupid just so that they can be seen. And he didn't do that. And I, I respected yeah. that. Yeah. I, you know, um, because he, you know, he, he'd seen so many documentaries or he, he knew what he was doing. Um, when he first got back to Seattle with all that film footage, he had like 150 hours worth of film footage. Mm -hmm. They had to go over and basically take, you know, take 150 hours and cut it down to like an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was a time um, at first where he wanted to interview some famous comics. Like he wanted to interview Joe Rogan or, you know, Dave Attell, mm -hmm. but he, he had no connections. Mm -hmm. Like he'd call up, you know, he called me up. He's like, how do I get a hold of Joe Rogan? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so that's when he, he said, okay, um, I think he saw the movie um, Jesus Camp. Now, Jesus Camp is a great documentary, and it's it's fly on the wall. Uh -huh. Like, you're watching all this stuff, and, you're, and nobody tells you what to think about it. And when he first started telling me, I think I'm going to make it like Jesus Camp where it's a fly on the wall. Uh -huh. And I, I didn't know what he was talking about, uh -huh. you know? But, um, but yeah, it, it turned out to be, um, really different from just about any comedy documentary that's out there. Uh, -huh. yeah, it, it's, it's really good. W one of the things I like to ask everybody I talk to is, um, when you, when you are, um, in a club, say, say you're just doing an open mic or something like that, and you see somebody that is, definitely new to it but they've got that spark and you can tell that they could be really good if they really stuck to it and worked hard at it what shortcuts would you give them to get better in that first year instead of just being so shitty that first year what 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 shortcuts would you give them to understand what comedy is all about and just be a better comedian uh, well, of course, I'd tell them, you know, to um, to try improv and uh, and actually try improv. And and the hard part about improv is once you teach yourself how to do it, you find out that going from your set written material back into improv and going from improv back into your set material where you're juggling things around that will teach you a lot about the difference between a joke through Britain and a joke you just come up with on top of your head. Mm -hmm. And you really need to, um, to be able to think while you talk and, and, and like, I, uh, you know, I taught myself how to meditate. And, um, and so, uh, I really kind of learned how to, um, to know that what I was saying, 
but also know in my head what I was going to say next. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're juggling a lot of different things pad and you got to learn how to do that. You can't just be, you know, talking about something and not know what you're going to say next. Mm -hmm. Um, That would be a skill I would learn. The other thing I would teach myself is uh, just pick up a book and read out loud once a day for like 10 minutes. So you get a command of your speaking voice because a lot of times the reason why we're um, we have uh, stage fright is because we we don't feel uh, confident with our voice. Mm-hmm. But when you when you practice every day on just talking, I mean, even like say you're driving you're driving in the car, nobody's around, just talk like you're doing a radio show and you got to fill in dead air. Mm-hmm. You'll find that oh my gosh, I've got spaces where i'm thinking and i'm not talking mm. so uh you gotta be able to do that you gotta be i guess it's it, the it's called being quick on your feet yeah that's the first time i've heard that just uh grab a book and read 10 minutes out loud that that makes a lot of sense and i wish i would have done that before i started because it's so funny and you may have gone through this you write all this stuff that just looks brilliant on paper and you've never said it out loud and you go on stage and it just sucks because yeah, because you're never, that's why when you write on stage in the moment, that's where you're going to find out if it works or not anyway, because yeah. you can, you can write a joke and you can sit there and think it's funny, but when you do it on stage, it doesn't get a laugh. There is a disconnect between what you think your fantasy and what, the real world is like uh-huh. and you got to get out of that fantasy world and find out more about the real world of you know what works and what doesn't yeah yeah on on the other hand though with you meditating do you ever do any like visualization type exercises where before you get on stage you visualize it going well no i was i i'm not very good at that i mean i because when i first started studying meditation I knew that that was a, that was a type of meditation Uh and whenever I tried it, I was, I was never good at visualizing things. So, um, I do a different type of meditation. Um, my, my meditation is more with words. You know, I, I, I say the words slowly in my head or I say them out loud or whatever, Mm -hmm. but before I go on stage, um, it's more like, um, I, I usually tell myself that I'm not funny because uh, the funny thing is when you have a really good show the night before and you're walking around like you're, you think you're, um, God skipped the comedy. That's when you have a bad show, yeah. you know? So every time <laughs> So I also notice, like after a really bad night of comedy, the very next night will be a good show. Uh-huh. So, I just started telling myself before I went on stage, I suck. I suck. I'm not funny. I'm not funny. And I would go on stage and I'd be funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of a, uh, uh, no expectations kind of, I would put myself in the mental state of having no expectations. Yeah. Yeah. I think I personally have been stuck in the fact, uh, stuck visualizing myself doing, doing well, at something I've never said. And then when I get up there, it, it doesn't go well. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah. but I've used visualization in other ways too that work, but I, I asked you that because I don't think it really works for comedy and at least, at least well, not for me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, 
with meditation or, or prayer, you know, I'm there, there's a lot of, uh, like I, I'm not into the type of meditation that has anything to do with hope, you know, like yeah. I hope this is going to be better than what it is now. The type of meditation I do is like, I'm in that moment. There's no past, there's no future just right here now. And so that kind of just works better for comedy, I think, yeah. you know, because if you, if you sit and think about, oh, I want to have a great show, want to have a great show and it doesn't turn out, you know, it's, it's never going to turn out the way you think it's going to, you know, it's, it's nothing in life ever turns out the way you think it's going to turn out. Right. You know, and, and so it's a lot harder to kind of live in the moment. Right. And it's a lot harder to dig yourself out of uh, a bad start when you visualize this, this great set, you know, you just, oh man, everything worked perfectly. And then all of a sudden the wheels start to come off and then you can't adjust because you are still in this visualization mode where, oh, everything's yeah. supposed to go right. And yeah. yeah about it, that. Uh, but what's funny is, you know, when you dig a hole and you're able to do improv, then you're able to joke, to tell a joke about how that last joke didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And so that makes the audience laugh because like, oh, she doesn't take himself seriously. He's yeah. not repeating these jokes like a robot. What I see, I see so many comics make the mistake of just reciting their jokes like they're a robot, like they're acting on stage, like I'm an actor and I'm going to do my script, you know, well, mm -hmm. you know, with comedy, it's, it's supposed to be, it seems like it's supposed to be unscripted. Right. So you better learn how to do that anyway. Right. Um, what a funny thing, um, what happened to me once was, uh, one of the most extreme cases of this was I was doing comedy at a small club in Seattle once. And, um, um, it was, uh, the comic showed up, I was there, but the, you know, the booking agent didn't tell us who was supposed to headline it. Right. Mm. And so, um, it came close to the show and, um, I asked this guy, I said, dude, um, you know, where do you want to go up? You know? And he's like, Oh, I'm headline. I'm like, okay, are you sure? I mean, you know, you don't, you don't really know me from Adam, mm -hmm. but, um, he was really confident in wanting to headline, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, which is a big no-no when you're when you're doing comedy because you never know who you're going up after. Yeah, but, you know this guy didn't give a fuck, right? So um, MC goes up, and you know spotlight goes up. I go on stage, I kill. You know, I do like thirty minutes, and because uh, I'm doing improv, and mm -hmm. he goes up on stage and he starts doing his act. Right. Just repeating it like a robot. Yeah. And uh uh and nobody's laughing. It's like just like 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, nobody's laughing, and he's still just doing his jokes, and that he's not even addressing the fact that the jokes are not working. Yeah. Right? So then um a fight breaks out in the room where uh -huh. tables get knocked over glasses get broken and there's a fight and he's still doing his show and he's not addressing the fact that there's a fucking fight going on in the audience that's how dumb this comic was wow. right i'm gonna you know because if there's you get caught up with your act and you think yeah. you're so great and you think your jokes are so great 
you're just going, I got to tell this joke because it's so great and I'm so brilliant. Mm. Well, you cling to that. You cling to that real joke and you think it's so precious and stuff. I mean, dude, there's a fight going on. And, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and he and finally, you know, after 45 minutes is out of him restyling his act, he thank you good night. It was it's like it was the weirdest fucking thing I ever saw in my life. That's wild. That's wild. It's funny. I used to have um, uh, a joke where, uh, I, and it was a true story. A cashier said I look like an older Harrison Ford, and that was a great setup for a joke. But uh, in between the time I started doing that joke and now, I went from contacts to glasses and I shaved my head. So there's. The, it, that joke just can't work anymore. And that was one of yeah. that, that was like my closer. And, mm -hmm. and I had to, I had to totally rethink my whole act because of that joke. And, yeah. and, uh, and it's, it's kind of funny how aging and, and things that happen to you kind of change your act. It's, it's yeah, the, I mean, that's another thing you, uh, you can, you can fall into a trap of, of doing your act. And, uh, you know, something changes and, mm -hmm. uh, and you're not able to change or, or, um, uh, I guess adapt to, you know, what's going on. Yeah. And so that is part of the disconnect between what the audience sees as a comic up there completely disconnected from reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for instance, you know, like comic that, uh, say something changes like, uh, the way we view, um, gender and identity you know mm -hmm. which is a big thing uh right now and uh well I, i'm gonna i'm gonna stick to this thought that i had 10 years ago and i'm i'm right and yeah. I'm like well the world has changed since then and mm -hmm. and when you do that now it doesn't get a laugh so why why cling to something that you think is true when reality itself has changed mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah so that um that kind of thing um I, I think that that's why a lot of people um, have a problem with, um, you know, wokeness or whatever. You know, it's like things change, dude. You know, yeah. things are not always going to stay the same where you're going to cling to this idea of what a male or a female is. Right. You know. And it's not like it's anything new. Things have been changing since the dawn of time. And it, mm -hmm. everybody thinks that all this stuff that's coming about now is just all new well no people were gay in the in the 1800s and people you know wanted to be a different gender in at that time but they just they have the means to do it now and it's not it's just not okay to put that down anymore so um un unless you can do it in a funny way and you're yeah. you're you're in you're in that in that world enough that it's it's something that is right and and okay but yeah it's i i, I don't well, like... i mean I, I i my deal is a comics job uh we're we're lowly to begin with i mean we're mm. not we're not special we're different from like a priest or a politician or a professor um all of those are are jobs that that have power mm -hmm. and and the comic is is the guy that doesn't have any power at all mm -hmm. you know and um so you know our our job is to is to punch up you know we're not it, it that's that's because it just 
jokes about, you know, um, ugly people or fat people, those jokes never really worked very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess there might have been a time where it was funny to say that because, oh, you're not supposed to say that. But in reality, the really good comics, I mean, the guys like Mark Twain or Jonathan Swift or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they're always, uh, I mean, they, they were like, I, I already know how to do comedy. Um, I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm going to make tilt about the king, you yeah. know, because that's, <laughs> that's where it's really risky. Right. When, yeah. when you're, um, you know, like, like you're Bill Hicks and you're making fun of, uh, the Gulf war, you uh-huh. know, during, while the war is going on. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's where you, you really take a risk. I, I honestly don't think, you know, a, a woke crowd of, you know, there's never been a time where I've, I've been afraid of like a, a gang of homosexuals beating me up after the show. Yeah. I've been afraid that some soldiers were about ready to kick my ass yeah. after the show, <laughs> you know, after I, um, and so that's what you're, you're really at risk when you're making fun of like war, mm. uh, politics, rich people. Yeah. I mean, rich people can really fuck up your life. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> the, the club owner, you know, if you're if you make a joke about the club owner, it better be funny and uh-huh. you better laugh at it. Because <laughs> and if you're, if you're up there, just make it fun about, Oh, you know, um, this girl is ugly or she's fat or whatever. I mean, that's really not that dangerous of a joke. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's been done so many times that it, it doesn't need to be. Yeah. Done. I mean, I made fun of ugly people when I was in grade school, dude. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not, how is that funny? I mean, it, I mean, it, it, it it's funny on a, a really low level, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so when you're doing stand up, I mean, you know, I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I dig <laughs> that. Well, I got, I got to say, I really enjoyed, uh, getting to know you and, you know, doing, doing the homework and watching the movie and listening to your stuff was really enjoyable. I, uh, I, and you are, um, I can tell you're a more peaceful person than one that was shot. And, uh, I'm glad <laughs> I just, I've, I've always been like this. Just, yeah. I mean, I was, I was in the zone when that, uh, we were doing that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, be, before we, and you wrote uh, a book called the Greyhound Diaries that I haven't had a chance yeah. to read yet. What's that all about? Um, well, I, I, uh, I kept a, uh, a, a diary. Um, you know, when I lived in Seattle, I, uh, I had to take the bus, uh, a lot because, you know, the, the plane wouldn't fly to like <laughs> places like, uh, Spokane, it was just too expensive. So uh-huh. I would take the bus and, uh, I found a, a diary um one day and i i started writing the diary and it was just i looked at it and it was all about being on the bus because i was right writing the book on the bus and um so that i just had the idea that i would just only write in this diary whenever i was on the bus uh-huh. so i um i i you know uh, over the years you know whenever i took the bus i would just write about the the bus and um Eventually, I started taking pictures of you know some of the funny stuff that happened on the bus, uh-huh. and there that was back before digital cameras, and you know I used uh, slides, and so it became a slideshow. It became a, a one man show. Oh, that's book. cool. Yeah, um, 
And so the whole book is about riding the bus. Yeah, that's that's great. And one of your favorite, one of my favorite jokes of yours is about the Greyhound when the uh, Western movie is on all the screens and you can't get any sleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, that's in the Greyhound diary, but it's on my on my CD because that you know I had some excerpts, you know, out uh, outtakes from the Greyhound Diary live show. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. Well, James, it was really great getting to know you. And uh, do, do you have uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, any of your social medias, or you got anything going on? Um, just watch that movie, The Unbookables. I'm proud of that. Buy my book. I got two CDs out: um, Massage's Clown and uh, and the uh, um, the Pander Monkey. You know, yeah. I, I, those those two CDs. Um, I put out all, all on, you know, on the same day. You know, yeah. It's basically, it's a double album, but it's on two topics. Pander Monkey is, is more like, you know, politics and, yeah. and Misogynist Clown is all about um, relationships and women. So uh-huh. Check those out. Which one was it Lipsky that called you Pander Monkey? Uh, that was, uh, that was uh, Andy Andrus. And, Andy, Young okay. Vocals. Yeah. He called yeah. me a pander monkey. And so I just took that yeah. and I made it a, a title of my CD. Yeah, I remember that line, but I couldn't remember who said it. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it, James. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. See you later. Yeah. You can stick around for a sec if you want. Oh, okay. <laughs>